turning your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7 as we continue our journey through the book of Ezra this evening. As we mentioned when we started out the book of Ezra, it kind of breaks into two very clean parts. Chapters 1 through 6 deal with the first segment of the book of Ezra and really don't, as we've seen, include very much at all regarding the man, Ezra himself, who will be introduced to here in chapter 7. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 deal with really the first group uh, that came back from the Babylonian captivity and went back to the area of Jerusalem as the heart of Cyrus was stirred and offered God's people, the Jews, a chance to return to their area there in Jerusalem with his blessing and even his support to some degree financially to go back and to restore and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and burned with fire when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered the area there in Judah. And under a man named Zerubbabel and a few others, about 50,000 or so individuals we saw went back, uh, took that difficult journey, some 900 miles as they would go the longer journey uh, to get back to the area of Jerusalem from Babylon, which would cause them to move along really kind of the Euphrates River area there to utilize the, the river source as they would make that journey. It was about a 900-mile journey, keep in mind, on foot. Difficult journey, went back to that area, embraced this call of God to rebuild and restore the temple there in Jerusalem. And we saw they faced their challenges. They faced, faced spiritual opposition and difficulties. For a time, God's work was even halted and hindered in the lives of his people, but the Lord, through a few prophets, stirred up the people again. They got back to the work, and we saw last time as we finished out chapter 6 together that the temple, it said chapter 6, verse 15, was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, uh, which was in the sixth year of King Darius. So the temple of God has now been finished. That first calling, if you would, has been embraced. The temple's been finished. They've reestablished the worship they're back in Jerusalem with the temple rebuilt. And as we come to chapter 7 through 10 now, we really get the second segment, uh, kind of the second part of the book of Ezra. Uh, and what's important to understand, though the Bible doesn't directly reference it, we can tell by putting together years and history chronologically, is there's actually about a 60 or so year gap between chapter 6 and what takes place here in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1, you notice says, now after these things. And if you just read that at first glance, you might be quick to just think, okay, well, that means after chapter 6, verse 22, the very next thing that happened. Well, chronologically, it actually was six decades almost that have gone by at this time. So it's been about a 60-year gap. And now a second group or delegation will come back to Jerusalem. Now that the temple is rebuilt, under the direction of Ezra, this priest and scribe who will be introduced to now in chapter 7, this very godly man, and he goes back, and his primary focus is really to rebuild the spiritual lives of the people. Uh, Zerubbabel and the first group went back, and they rebuilt the temple, reinstituted the worship life among God's people. Ezra now returns with a burden and calling from the Lord to really rebuild and strengthen the lives of the people spiritually, to to bring back the teaching of the word of God and help God's people get back on track in the fullest sense spiritually we'll see in the last few chapters of the book here. Now, between chapter uh, 6 and chapter 7, that 60-year gap, that's actually where the book of Esther, which we'll get to shortly after Ezra here, we'll be going to Nehemiah and then Esther next, uh, it's in this 60-year gap when the book of Esther actually took place chronologically really in a time period between 
these two chapters. So as we come to chapter 7 now, we actually meet the man who the book is named after and who we believe actually recorded the uh, events described here in this book, Ezra himself. It tells us chapter 7, verse 1, now after these things, notice it was in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So this is a different empire now, a different ruler. Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, is now on the throne. That Ezra, it says, the son of Saraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, and the son of Zadok, who was the son of Ahitub, who was the son of Amariah, and the son of Azariah, and the son of Marioth, who, verse 4, was the son of Zeraiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki. Uh, sounds like a cute name, doesn't it? Probably was actually a really scary guy, but it sounds cute. Verse 4, the son of Zeraiah, the son of Uzi and Buki, and then the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas. Now, these names should start to be sound a little bit more familiar. Remember, Phineas was the son of Eliezer. Remember, Phineas we saw quite a ways back in the Old Testament. He was actually this zealous high priest of the Lord, remember, who actually went and put the javelin through those two individuals who were committing sexual immorality in a very brazen way. Remember, one of God's people was sleeping with, I believe it was a Midianite woman, and he went in and he put an end to the plague that was taking place because of this brazen sinful activity. So he had a real zeal for the Lord, Phineas did. And then, of course, Eliezer, who was one of the sons of Aaron, of course, most of us know quite well, the chief priest, and this Ezra, again, from that line, we're told here is the one who came up from, from Babylon. So what's being described here, just in this brief lineage in verses 1 down through verse 5, it's not a complete lineage, but what the Bible's doing is letting us know the, the general lineage in which Ezra, this man, comes from, and that he wasn't just a Jew he wasn't just someone who was from the people of Israel, but he actually was from the priestly line. We're going to read that he's a scribe, but later on it will also specifically say that he's a priest as well. And so we see he actually came from the family line that descended all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest or the high priest of Israel. So he has a very godly heritage. And so it's, in a sense, really wonderful to see him living out the legacy of his godly heritage. I mean, he's got in his heritage, going back, descendants who loved God, who served the Lord, who did some really wonderful things for the things of God and the people of God. And it's nice to see him in his generation now uh, really serving God faithfully himself. Uh, nothing more wonderful than to see generation after generation serving the Lord faithfully and to see a next generation rise up and, and begin to let God use them in a really powerful and a wonderful way too. And on the other side of that, you know, there's probably nothing more sad than to see someone who's, you know, raised with a godly legacy. Maybe they have Christian parents who love the Lord, serve the Lord, uh, and, and they kind of take a detour and go the exact opposite direction. And they exercise their free will to either just completely rebel against the things of the Lord and live in the world, or maybe they just kind of grow up in a Christian home and just choose the path of kind of apathy. You know, just kind of a, a, a very lethargic attitude, and maybe their parents really were, you know, faithful and serving the Lord and very engaged in ministering and, you know, pulling teeth for them just to get them to, you know, kind of sit through a church service, and they just kind of cast off any of the wonderful things that were handed down to them as a legacy. Well, Ezra is a great example because he, he kind of steps into his God-given destiny, and we see the hand of God and the calling of the Lord was really upon this man's life. And he's a great 
character example, Ezra is in the Bible. We'll see him still ministering in the book of Nehemiah as well, teaching the people and leading a great revival and some wonderful things happening through his life. And he's just a great character study if you're looking to you know, really take notice of some things in someone's life and how God really used them in a profound way. Well, you know, Ezra here, we get to meet him in chapter 7. We learn some things about him, and I think they're just great characteristics to take note of. So it tells us, beginning in verse 6, regarding this Ezra, it says, He came up from Babylon, which reminds us that he was born during the captivity, more than likely. So again, he wasn't born in Jerusalem during the days when Solomon's temple was still there and the priestly system was operating. Uh, He actually was born in quite a a carnal existence. He was born in the world, if you would, in the world of Babylon and a pagan empire, all types of ungodly influences around him, if you can imagine. Again, in the Bible, uh, things like Babylon and Egypt, these are always uh, pictures and types to represent kind of the, the, the ungodly world system. Uh, and all the influences of that. And so, again, uh, beautiful to see men like Ezra, men like Daniel, these individuals who were exposed to Babylon, if you would. They had all kinds of influences. Uh, hopefully they had some godly parents that had a greater influence, but they were exposed to Babylon, you know, exposed to the things of the world, education and influences and all the. But yet they did not let that shape who they became. Uh, they still chose, despite what they were exposed to, to really yield themselves to being useful for God. And I and just to me, that's a great encouragement because you know, sometimes I, I think as parents that can, there can almost be kind of that panic thing that if we let Babylon have too much influence on our children, that somehow they're just going to turn out just ungodly and like rugrats and, and, and we, we almost over panic. And look, by all means... I think we should do what we can in good wisdom and judgment to preserve our children and try and be stewards and keep them innocent towards evil. Uh, But there's a lot of representation in the Bible of those who were exposed to a lot of ungodly things, not by their choosing, but just because of where they lived. Uh, You know, it just they may not have had the, the privilege. Not everybody can afford to send their children to a Christian school or maybe they can't homeschool and maybe their kids have to kind of be in the public school. And in a sense, in our minds, that might be like Babylon in today's day and age. And there can almost be a panic when the reality is, is God can preserve. Uh, God can use godly parents and other ways to keep his good hand upon people and still raise them up to love and to serve Jesus. And I appreciate examples like Daniel who purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself, uh, though he had all the access to all these ungodly and evil things, and Daniel used mightily of God. And Ezra, another example of that, exposed to Babylon, but yet he wasn't shaped by Babylon. He didn't let it influence and direct his life. He came up from Babylon, and it says, notice, from that upbringing, somehow in the midst of that, he became, it says, a skilled scribe in the law of Moses which the Lord God of Israel, verse 6, had given, and the king granted him all his request according to the good hand, or the hand, excuse me, of the Lord God upon him. So we're introduced in verse 6 to one of the positions, I guess you might say, that Ezra held, what his occupation was, the thing that he was kind of given to. And it tells us, verse 6, that he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. Now, a lot of times when we read that term, a scribe, 
we kind of just maybe envision our mind like a really intense or a glorified secretarial position, somebody who's just kind of you know, sitting there documenting things. Well, understand, in the Bible, the, the concept of a scribe is actually someone who, in essence, was certainly preserving the Word of God. That is, they were actually making handwritten copies of portions of the Word of God itself. Uh, understand, you know, in that day and age, there was no printing press, right? I mean, whether it was the Word of God or any other document, there was no printing press. So if you wanted to pass on any form of literature, the Word of God being certainly the most important piece of literature that ever came into existence, the way that you had to preserve that and pass it on or make another copy was literally letter by letter. You had to write a handwritten copy of the Word of God. And so this is one of the roles of a scribe is literally they letter by letter would make copies of the actual word of God itself. If somebody wanted a copy of Deuteronomy or the entire Old Testament, whatever portion existed, they would write handwritten copies of this. You want to talk about becoming familiar with the word of God, with the law of Moses, literally letter by letter. I mean, and, and the if you ever do a little bit of research of what was required of these Hebrew scribes to do this, I mean, it's astonishing the extent that they went to, the requirements they took upon themselves to make sure of the accuracy of what they did and that they would do it faithfully and that if there was any error or potential scratch out, or anything, you couldn't do that. There was no white out. There was no delete like on a computer screen. I mean, imagine you're writing the whole you know, book of Deuteronomy about and you get to around chapter 28 or something and you make a slip of the pen there Guess what you had to do? Rip up and get rid of the entire scroll and start all over again. This was the intensity of the accuracy in which these men meticulously did this to preserve copies of the word of God and why it had to be done with skill. You notice it says there he was a skilled scribe. So they preserved God's word, made copies to pass it on, but they also became teachers of the word of God as well. Made sense with the familiarity they had with the law of Moses and the word of the Lord, they were very well equipped because of their working knowledge of the scripture to become the teachers in Israel and those who would teach the law of the Lord and the scriptures to God's people to help them. And so this was what Ezra's role was. And notice the Holy Spirit chooses to say in a complimentary way of Ezra that he wasn't just a scribe in the law of Moses, but do you notice what the Holy Spirit gives to us there? A little extra, it says he was a skilled scribe. In other words, he was very gifted in this. He did it with great skill. There was a lot of effort, no doubt, put in on his part, and there was a real gifting. There was a real skill to be able to you know, do what he did in handling of the word of God. So he was a skilled scribe, the Holy Spirit says of him in the law of Moses, which the Lord had given and we're told that as he goes back now to Jerusalem to now lead this next delegation back, which we'll see in these chapters in front of us, it was because, though he was there in Babylon, it says the king, now that's a reference to King Artaxerxes, the ruler of Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, it was because the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. The idea is that the king granted him favor. We're going to see he received permission from the king. He would not have been able to do this if he was not given release 
from King Artaxerxes to have the freedom to be able to return back to Jerusalem. So God moves on the heart of this king, which he'll refer to at the end of the chapter, to put, if you would, a favor into the heart of the king, King Artaxerxes, to give to some degree, it seems, permission, likely that Ezra went to the king, had this burden on his heart, uh, if you would, a calling from the Lord that he wanted to go back. He sensed that there was some need, some calling of the Lord to go and help God's people there, to teach the word of God, to strengthen the people. He was concerned for his you know, brothers and sisters that he knew were there in Jerusalem, and there was this concern on his heart that he wanted to go and to invest into their lives spiritually. And as he approaches the king, it says, because the hand of the Lord was upon this man's life, as the result of that, the king granted him all his request. God gave him favor. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, take notice of that statement there, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was upon him, because that will become a recurring statement regarding Ezra, and as we continue to go through even into the book of Nehemiah. The indication there, at least six times we get it in uh, the, the next section in front of us, the idea of the hand of the Lord upon him, it just speaks of God's favor. You know, God's hand was involved in his life. You know, God was giving him a hand, you might say. This wasn't something he was doing on his own. It wasn't through his own efforts or self-resolve that he was achieving success. I'm sure there was a level of human commitment. He seems to be a very dedicated man. We'll see that in verse 10. But beyond human dedication, there was spiritual enablement and there was divine favor upon his life. That's the idea there. When the Bible says the hand of the Lord was upon him. And, you know, th th that's what we want. I mean, when we seek to do what the Lord is directing us to do, whether it's like Ezra here and some form of ministry or whatever it may be that the Lord's guiding us to do for him in, in any capacity in our life, uh, we want the Lord's hand upon us. Uh, we don't want his hand against us. That's important. <laughs> we want his hand upon us. The idea is God's hand is at our back. His hand is on us. That is, he's giving us a hand. He is helping us, enabling what we're doing with divine blessing and favor. And that, of course, brings, we'll see, many things. Protection, preservation. It brings provision. It's what causes him to be successful and fruitful to some degree in what he does because the Lord's hand was upon him. Because, see, we can do things sometimes, and if God's hand isn't upon us or God's hand isn't upon what we're doing— uh, usually you see indication to the opposite of that. As compared to, you can see the contrast of that when we say, hey, you can really tell God's hand is upon him. You can really sense God's hand is upon her life and what she's doing. You can, you can really see the hand of the Lord involved in that situation or you know, in that ministry or in that effort. It's evident God's hand's upon that. We, we use that kind of terminology. And this was the case with Ezra here. The hand of the Lord was upon him, and that's why we'll see the king gave him favor, and he ended up being very fruitful in the things that he did. Verse 7 says, Now some of the children of Israel, the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem, that is, they traveled with Ezra as a delegation going back. Notice it was in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra, says verse 8, came to Jerusalem, notice, in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, now take note verse 9, this gives us an indication of the journey of the trip. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, 
he came to Jerusalem according, notice our term again, according to the good hand of his God upon him. You take notice there from verse 9, it's very evident, dating when he came in the prior verses, but here you can tell he started the trip the first day of the first month from Babylon, and it says he came to Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. So a a four-month journey. That's how long this journey took just to get to the place where the Lord called him to minister. (laughs) He had to travel four months, and not alone with a whole caravan full of people. And as I said, the journey they would take was usually along the Euphrates purposely. It wasn't necessarily the shortest route, but they would take the journey that kept them predominantly along the the Euphrates because they needed a water source. And to go any other direction, the drain was way more rugged, was way more dangerous and threatening. So the common path was that 900-mile journey working along what was a water source. Again, you're traveling for four months with a lot of people. Now, again, I look at this and I think to myself, boy, that speaks tremendously to the level of commitment and the heart that this man Ezra had, that this guy was willing not, not to just go four houses down to teach a Bible study, you know, not, to, not to just travel four miles. This guy traveled four months one way just to get where God was calling him to go minister. I mean, that is a heart of someone who's willing to make sacrifice to answer the call of God. I mean, it's a very beautiful thing. It indicates how dedicated he is, how willing he was to sacrifice of himself, of his time, no doubt his energies, his efforts, uh, to be willing to uproot himself from what was comfortable. I mean, here he is living in Babylon. It's what he knows. He's got a sense of you know roots and establishment there. And you know, any of us, if you've ever you know moved maybe from one location to another before, or even just you know moving across town can be a, a task in and of itself. But if you ever moved, you know maybe from one community to another, or from one state to another, or one country to another, I mean, that's a that's a challenging transition. To make a transition in a new community and everything's new and you've got root system and people you know and relatives and connections and and to have to set all that aside. And he's setting it all aside for what? The call of God. To answer the call of God, he is willing to embrace that and make that kind of sacrifice to go where the Lord is leading him to go, knowing the Lord's calling him to Jerusalem, to go and teach the word and to minister and to help the people there. And you know, just a, a great example, I think, of you know, us at times when God calls us to something, we, we have to be willing to, to embrace some degree of sacrifice. It's often been said before, if you're looking for a convenient ministry, uh, that's fine, but it probably won't be a very effective ministry. Uh, and this was not a convenient ministry at all for Ezra. There was nothing convenient about it. It was a sacrificial step in faith and obedience, and the Lord honored that. And just a beautiful thing to see him travel so far and make that kind of journey. You know, it, it, it reminds me of, of a great example that we should all be open to in our lives and at times willing to, to answer God's call and not just take those little easy approaches. I mean, just being, again, you know, very candid, probably one of the biggest uh, challenges, and, you know, I've been part of the Calvary Chapel movement now since the you know, early 90s, probably one of the biggest challenges we've seen over the years, even with, you know, Calvary Chapel churches and pastors going out, um, is a lot of times, you know, this tends to be the, the difficulty. Uh, and there tends to times be quandaries where people want to, you know, just you know, drive five minutes up the road and 
plant the next Calvary Chapel kind of a thing. And, and one of the biggest quandaries has been among the leadership and the movement of, look, there, there are states where you got to drive six hours <laughs> to find the next. Why don't you go there? Why don't you go where the gospel needs to be preached or where there's not a style of ministry? You know, again, in the, Certainly, that, that's the, the heart there behind that is there, there's something, I think, that a Calvary Chapel-style church does bring. Uh, that's what makes us distinct. Again, God's working through other churches and other movements. And anyway, certainly glamorizing what uh, you know, we do is the preem or the most important thing. Uh, but I, I do think that there's a good thing that God does through the expository teaching of his word and a balanced understanding of, of the Holy Spirit, you know, believing in the gifts and yet being sensitive to what the word of God says about them and, and just the, the, the you know, informal style and what a Calvary Chapel type ministry and style brings. Uh, but yet because of that, I, I think it's fruitful to establish them you know, in locations where there's, where there's a need of them. Uh, you know, the first time that I went, I, I went three hours away from where I was. And, and lo and behold, though I didn't anticipate it, you know, and swore I would never do that again. God turned around 13 years later and, and you know, came up with the same idea again. Can you imagine that? And I thought at least the second time it would just be maybe 30 minutes from where I was. or something. I could just keep my house and keep the kids in the same school. And God, no, how about we, let's try a three-hour thing again. Just let's go three and a half hours. Let's actually go beyond your hometown and we'll send you another half hour down to the shore area, you know. Uh, and, and, but when the Lord calls, we have to be willing to go. We have to be willing to step into that and to embrace those kind of things. And again, is there going to be a measure of sacrifice? Yes, but that's what makes it a calling. That's what makes it a calling. You know, the Lord may be calling some of you, or he may call you to do something in the future, and there may be some sacrifice. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of the sacrifice. You trust the Lord. You go where he's leading you to go, whether it be on a mission field or wherever he's leading you to do, and the Lord will be with you. He'll sustain you. He'll bless and honor that. So this long journey, now four months, again, just blows my mind. I complained about three hours. This guy went four months. Four months this guy went just to get to the spot where the Bible study was. And the good hand of the Lord was upon him, and that's why he arrived there. God preserved him. Verse 10, now look, this, this is a great, great verse, verse 10. For Ezra, we get a little bit of his background, now, had prepared his heart, the Bible says, to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. You know, when I was a, a early believer and starting to kind of wrestle with and figure out if maybe the, you know, what the calling of God was and that maybe the Lord was calling me upon, you know, putting his calling upon my life, somebody actually gave me this verse from, uh, you know, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, and said, I believe this is what the Lord is doing and wants to do with your life. Uh, and it was just a verse that, you know, when you look at it, what a wonderful description of no wonder why God used Ezra in the way that he did. You know, the Bible tells us something about this man by way of observation in one verse. And the observation made about his life, to a lot of reasons, to a lot, is an indication of why he was used so wonderfully. Because of what it said about him, this is why certainly the good hand of the Lord was upon him. I think this is maybe an indication of how the good hand of the Lord was upon him and why the Lord's hand was upon him 
And it's a good reminder for us because these are things that certainly we all to some degree, if we want to be used by God, can say, Lord, I want to do that. Motivate me to do that. Help me to take that same pathway. And I mean, look, look at the three things specifically that were told about Ezra. And notice that he had done, it says, he had done this before he arrived. He didn't do this when he started to arrive. This was preparation work God was doing in his life while he was still in Babylon. Before he engaged the call, before he was, in a sense, in the more official role, and probably maybe he was ministering in Babylon as well, but this is what he was doing in the early days, in the days of small things, in obscurity, when nobody was paying attention to what he was doing. Nobody knew him. He had no, again, official recognition, if you would. It says, Ezra, notice, had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, that's to obey what he learned, and then to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. That was this man's life habit. If you put it into three words, he studied, he obeyed, and he taught. He studied, he obeyed, and he taught. That is, he studied what the word of God said in a personal sense. It says he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. That is, he was just someone who loved the Bible. He loved the word of God for himself, first and foremost. And he was serious. He was a serious student in the scripture. He spent time in God's word. He, he dug into it. He learned it. He developed a, a, a good working knowledge of what the word of God said because he was spending time seeking the law of the Lord. I, I see that term there, seeking the law of the Lord. And, and it, it speaks to me kind of the idea of like how somebody is seeking for diamonds, you know, mining for gold, things like just, you know, getting into the word of God and seeking it out. Lord, what does this mean? I want to understand this. I, I want to understand who you are and, and give me a theology, Lord, from just your word. Not a, well, what is this person's theology or what's that group's theology? Theology is, what does the Bible say? What does the word of God say? And Ezra just, again, was familiar with the scripture. He was diligent about just searching and studying the word of God. And there's something really valuable that happens when you first just get a heart that's prepared to just want to be in the word. That you love the word of God, you want to spend time in it and seek it out for yourself and really understand who God is and get a good grasp on the scripture for yourself. And notice he didn't just seek God's word, but secondarily, notice it wasn't just intellectual, it wasn't just academic, it wasn't just head knowledge, and it wasn't even just so he could debate people or sound more spiritual than anyone else. Notice it says he sought the word of the Lord first, and then secondarily it says also it says to do it. That is, he understood the connection that what I learned in the Bible is so that I might live what's in the Bible. He wasn't just wanting to learn the Bible so he could have Bible degrees and be smart and, and impressive in his theology. His first heart desire was, Lord, I want to learn what your word says because I want to live the way you want me to live. I want to live like a man of God, Lord. I want to live in accordance with your truth of your word. I want to live under the authority of what your word says. And he was someone who was obeying what he was learning. Boy, that's critical. That's the first step, studying the Bible, but then living the Bible, learning the Bible, and then walking out, putting on the, you know, the shoe leather to what we're learning in the bonded leather and actually living it out, doing what the word of God says, like James speaks about, that we're not deceiving ourselves being hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. There's a real disconnect when we miss that. 
And, you know, the Lord really, truly uses someone who first and foremost loves and studies and knows the Bible and has a good working knowledge of the word of God, but secondarily, somebody who's living it himself. That is, they're not a hypocrite. They're not somebody who just wants to know the Bible because they want to stand up and give presentations about the Bible. They're somebody who the Bible is ingrained in their being. And they want it ingrained in their being so it governs their mind and governs their heart and they live it out themselves with sincerity and with integrity. Because see, when you have a life that's marked with that, then you have a life that with credibility and I think with impact can then do the third thing is that's actually, it says, to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's why Ezra became an effective teacher because he knew the word of God well. He learned it deeply. He lived it with dedication and faithfulness in his personal life. And therefore, those two things contributed to him being someone who was very well gifted with being able to teach it and to explain it to others and to be able to give understanding of the scripture and help people apply it to their own lives. So what a great, great life habit, a man who studied the word, who obeyed the word, and then taught the word to God's people. And verse 11 now tells us the copy of the letter that Ezra brought with him. That was his permission as he went back traveling through the areas and back to Jerusalem. It says verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. So again, notice as we're describing Ezra here, again, there's that reference. I said Ezra the priest and the scribe. So he was both a scribe as well as he had the calling of a, of a priest as well, serving in that function of ministry. And again, the commendation that the Holy Spirit gives to this man, boy, I envy it, wish it would be true of my life more. It says he was an expert, an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes of Israel. He wasn't just acquainted with the word of God. It says he was an expert he became an expert in the word of God. I mean, think of the things that in our day and age that people strive to become experts at. You know, experts at this and experts at that. And we try and get expertise in all these areas. You know, last night I was with a, a group of uh, young people. I periodically go on Tuesday nights over Atlantic City and there's a group of kids. There's a Bible club and I go over and play soccer with them. And, and they were all bragging about how they were experts in Fortnite and and they were experts, you know, and they were all, they, and, and I'm think, thinking to myself, man, it's the, the things that we try and, and gain expertise in. Would to God that we'd become experts in the word of God. Could you imagine if more Christians said, Lord, help us to become experts in the word of God, to have our expertise be we know the word of God well, and we try and live it faithfully, and we're trying to spread it generously teach others and share the word of God and have an impact in the culture. This man was an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord. And this is a copy of the letter that he now returns with. We get the record in verse 12. Notice there's a lot of letters uh, referenced as we saw already in the book of Ezra. This is another one. Artaxerxes, verse 12, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven perfect peace, and so forth. That sounds like a king, right? <laughs> perfect peace, and so forth. Let's move on. Verse 13, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm 
who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. So notice the first way you can tell the hand of the Lord is upon him is he's given permission. He's given permissive opportunity to be able to go. The king could have restricted him, but he says, I am giving you, he says, and all those in my realm and any who would volunteer the freedom to go up to Jerusalem and travel together with you. Notice, and it was a voluntary thing. It says those who volunteer. You know, and the calling of the Lord ultimately always becomes a voluntary thing. Remember, Jesus said many are called, but few are chosen. And I think the call of the Lord goes out a lot more than we see people answering the call of the Lord. Because there is a sense of, of here am I, Lord, send me. And I think there are people who receive the call of the Lord, but, you know, for whatever reasons, they struggle with it. They, they, they hedge upon it, you know. And here it says there's a volunteer aspect. Those who want to go, whoever volunteers, he says, to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and seven counselors, to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And whereas you are to carry the silver and the gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. So notice as they're going out, verse 14 references that they were actually being sent out. It says by the king and his seven counselors or cabinet members as they're given permission to go. So they were officially, if you would, sent out with authorization as ambassadors. And again, you know, even as we look at this, these are the same things that we want our king to do, not only to give us permission to do what he would want us to do. Lord, what would you have me to do? Well, he needs to give us permission to do anything that we're going to do. He needs to open the door. But then more than that, we want, we want to be sent by our king. We want to be sent with authorization and know that the backing of our king is with us and that we didn't just go out, that we were sent out. You know, we read in the book of Acts regarding the early church and how the Holy Spirit is so clearly directing the ministry of the early church and and where the Lord says, you know, separate to me Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. And it says they laid hands on them, they prayed for them, and then it says they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. That is, they didn't just go out, they were sent out, and more than that, sent out by God, by the divine throne of God himself, sent out by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want. You know, there are times when people have went out, but they really weren't sent out. And and that can happen sometimes. But we want to be sent out. Lord, here am I, send me. I want to know that your authorization from the throne, like here with Ezra, that it's behind me, that you're sending me, Verse 16, it says, and whereas, the letter continuing, all the silver and gold that you may find in the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful, he's told, to buy with this money from the king's throne, notice, bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. You notice he's getting clear instruction from King Artaxerxes and these seven counselors. Look, take this money with you. We're entrusting you with these resources. Buy what you need, but use these things for the work of God. Use these things, it says there, for the offerings on the altar. And don't just spend this money frivolously. Use it for God's purposes. Make sure it is being used 
as God prescribes it to be used. And again, I think that's a, a great reminder as well. You know, when God's hand is on something, you, you want that heart and that type of integrity, even towards resources, resources that are intended to be used for God's purposes, not just being used in any manner, but used to actually facilitate the the work of God and something that contributes to his work and to worship. Make sure they say that you are careful, he says, verse 17, to buy with this money these things that would help with the worship and the offerings. Again, being careful, using God's money carefully. Certainly an important thing as we serve the Lord in our lives. In verse 18, notice as well, whatever seems good to you and your brethren, do with the rest of the silver and the gold. Do with it according to the will of your God. So interesting. He receives some instruction of what to do with certain funds and resources. And then apparently because Ezra was such a trustworthy man of God and apparently had such integrity in his reputation and trustworthiness, the king, though he is contributing to this project of going back to, re, you know, to, to invest in the people of God, he says there, okay, here's some instruction, but then verse 18, he says, and then whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, that is the, the discretionary amounts that are left over after you do the specifics, whatever it seems best in your judgment to do with the rest, do it according to your God. In other words, he was given leverage to use God-given wisdom and to have the freedom to be able to look to the Lord and receive direction from God and then to channel that money and use it in different ways as a good steward. Again, speaks of the, the character that Ezra must have had, that trustworthiness that they were willing to entrust him and say, you use your discretion. Uh, we trust that God will give you good judgment in how you handle the remaining funds. Verse 19, also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver these in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you have occasion to provide, pay for it. Here's again, look at it, from the king's treasury. So he's receiving this kind of, you know, onus upon him to be very faithful, to be a good steward with the money. You notice the, the little reference there in verse 19. They say, when you get there, it says, with the articles that are given to you of gold and silver for the service of the house of your God, deliver it in full before the God of Jerusalem. In other words, they're saying you left with X amount of pieces of silver and gold for God's purposes, not for you to utilize, to go take little excursions or trips or renovate your house or anything like, no, no. God's money is for God's work and for God's people. It's not for you to utilize, you know, and take your perks and you know, deliver in full. We sent 365 pieces. When you get there, there, you better deliver 365 pieces. And again, there's that aspect of stewardship again, that, that they're putting that you know, upon him, that responsibility, entrusting that he would do this, that he would faithfully travel with that money. And they say in verse 20, and whatever more you may need, then it says, pay for it from the king's treasury. He almost kind of given a blank check from the throne to be able to do what was necessary to make sure he took care of any other expenses that arised. Again, we, we see this, and we've talked about it before, this pattern of how when God is in something, God finances his work. I mean, God moves on the heart of a pagan king to finance a spiritual work. You know that's God. Last chapter, remember, we saw God saying, use tax money. You know, we just let us be tax exempt. God actually said, no, take the taxes and pay for my work. 
You know God's in something like that. But these are just good reminders that God can move on the hearts of any person. And, you know, God is not lacking resources. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he can sell cattle whenever he wants and send them through anybody's pocket and anybody's check and send the resources that are necessary. And here it's through the king's treasury that this work would be provided for. Verse 21, and I, even I, Artaxerxes, king, issue a decree, it says, to all the treasurers who are over in the region beyond the river. So this is now advice to those where Ezra was headed. The scribe of the law of the God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Notice, Give him what he needs, but you notice there's also regulation put on it. Again, you talk about this king's using good stewardship. He says, give him whatever he needs up to the prescribed limit. It wasn't just a free-for-all. There, there were boundaries. There was wisdom being used here. Up to the prescribed limit, let him receive those things. The only thing that was without limit, it seems, was the salt. Uh, other things, there were certain measures, 100 talents and so forth. And verse 23, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done diligently for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? So the king sends, look, hey, the more we appease all the different gods out there, the more there'll be favor upon my throne. That was the way the, the Persian mindset was. They were a polytheistic people. But again, the idea is whatever the God of heaven is commanding, let it be done for these people to help them. I like, again, though it's an indirect reference, the king in some sense, whether he realizes it or not, is endorsing that this is something that is of God. It's not just some man with an idea. He says, whatever God commands. The idea is just all Ezra is is the instrument. Ezra is just receiving direction from God, and he's just carrying out really what God's asking him to do. And there's kind of that indication here of the, the divine work behind it. You know, what's God commanding? to do and whatever God's commanding we want to cooperate with that we want to participate and be involved in such obediently also we inform you verse 24 that it shall not be lawful to impose tax tribute or custom on any of the priests the Levites the singers the gatekeepers remember these are all the workers in the house of God it says or the servants of the house of God so look at that the administration from Persia said, don't tax my spiritual workers. It won't be permitted. He wasn't allowed. It won't be lawful to impose tax upon them. And you, Ezra, verse 25, according to your God-given wisdom. I love that statement. That's where true wisdom comes from. God-given wisdom. Don't we all need more of that? According to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. So he gives to Ezra a final exhortation in a sense. He says, Ezra, something else I want you to do when you get there. Set up, he says, use the God-given wisdom that you receive from the God of heaven and, and establish leaders and magistrates and those who can help rule and provide oversight. Set those things in order with the judges and he says, try and pick those who know the laws of your God. They'll be the best leaders, he says. And then he says, when you find those who don't know the law of God, teach them. Again, this was the, the responsibility upon him that he be a teacher of the word of God, because that's what would help bring stability back to Jerusalem. 
That's what would help the people of God become healthy and strong as they receive the teaching of the word of God. And this is what Ezra would predominantly do. Whoever will not observe the law of your God, finally he says, in the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether death or banishment or confiscation or imprisonment. So he didn't want to challenge what Artaxerxes was issuing a decree over. Now, verse 27 and 28 give us now Ezra's thankful response. This is sort of his testimony of praise to what he knew God had done. Ezra, verse 27, said, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And he has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors, before all the king's mighty princes. He says, So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God, there it is again, was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Now, as we head next time into chapter 8, we'll begin to see a reference to the actual leaders and the men and those he called as a team, if you would, to kind of travel with him to go up and answer this call of God. But he speaks here of how he was encouraged because he says there in verse 27, bless the Lord who's put such a thing like this into the heart of that king and his counselors. See, Ezra recognized all the favor in his life, all the grace, all the blessing, the open doors, the provision. Ezra humbly recognized this had nothing to do with him. He recognized this is from one thing alone, the God of heaven and earth who controls the hearts and minds of men, even when he chooses, can stir the heart of King Cyrus. He can put something like this into the heart of King Artaxerxes so that his work comes to pass through people who he moves upon their hearts. And he realized that this was just God. God was just moving in the heart of the king. He says he's put this into the heart of the king to do such a thing to help out me in what I'm doing. You know, what a great encouragement to us to realize that that is the God that we serve. That when God wants to work through your life, in your life, accomplish something, God can put things into the hearts of people that are connected to your life to bring about what God wants for your life. God can put it into the heart of someone else to be favorable towards you, to help you, to grant an open door to you, to come alongside you, to cooperate, because God will move heaven and earth more than that. God will move the hardest hearts of men to bring about what God wants. What a wonderful thing to have that confidence. Lord, you can do that to assist me to experience what I want. Let's stand together. We'll pray.